Hi, Professor Stanley here, and I am back with another podcast, and today's topic is crisis intervention. It covers the content of Chapter 26 in your book. I'm going to start this podcast at an unusual spot, and I'm going to go back and talk about what happens with healthcare providers who are providing care for people in crisis. Unfortunately, as part of our job, when we are continually providing care for someone in crisis, we can develop a type of vicarious traumatization called secondary trauma. And it's important because of that, that we use good self-care practices, such as um, taking a therapeutic respite for ourselves, vacations, um, good exercise, going to see a counselor if we need to, and doing the kinds of things that we need to do to keep ourselves okay. An example of this recently that I had was a high-risk OB nurse who had had several fetal deaths within a very short period of time as a part of her practice. Because of this and because of processing the grief with the mothers, her own coping resources became overwhelmed and she wound up being admitted to the psychiatric unit for, psych- for suicidal ideation. So another thing that can happen is as we are like this nurse, you know, frequently going through these traumatic events and experiencing secondary trauma and having vicarious traumatization, we can also develop compassion fatigue, which is a sense of exhaustion that can happen secondary to providing clinical crisis care over long periods of time. The good news is, is that if we do engage in good self-care practices and keep ourselves okay, instead, many times we can experience compassion satisfaction and have a wonderful sense of fulfillment and value and joy that is derived when we are able to help others. And even um, if we have this kind of joy in our job and get to see the benefits of our work, it can also act as a buffer to prevent compassion fatigue. Now, the book does mention that one coping measure commonly used among nurses and healthcare providers is called psychological debriefing. And I wanted to talk, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that later, but I can tell you that frequently when we have crises go down on the psychiatric unit, one of the steps in our process is to go back and to debrief and to analyze what happened and to walk through the steps with the other staff members, especially if someone has been injured, and just see what we could have done differently and how we can take care of each other in that process. All right, so let's go ahead and go back to the beginning of the book now and talk about what crisis is. I think we probably all kind of understand intuitively that crisis can be many shapes and forms. We all have very specific crises to ourselves, like the death of a loved one or perhaps a serious illness that occurs. Like if you were diagnosed suddenly with cancer, that would be a crisis. But there are also crises that, that extend to a much larger area where many people within a certain region are affected. For example, during the more tornadoes, you had people that were experiencing personal crises where they lost loved ones in the tornado. But you also had this larger community crises where people on a mass scale had lost their homes and their resources, and it did threaten to overwhelm the community. And without outside help, probably the recovery would not have been as, as I hate to say easy, because it wasn't easy, but probably not as effective as if it had been. There can even be crises on a large scale, like perhaps um, a country goes to war, or maybe even on a global scale, like during World War I and World War II. 
But a crisis is often conceptualized as a state of disequilibrium. Basically, you know, you have this nice little homeostasis that normally occurs where life is kicking along just like it normally does. And then all of a sudden something comes along and you are tossed out of that normal sort of homeostasis. Well, of course, the process when you have a crisis is to get back to that normal way of life. And so you are then at a state of disequilibrium, which is when your coping response becomes disproportionate to the stressor. And that is something that can occur in crises. So, of course, the goal being, again, to reach that homeostasis or equilibrium again. Crises basically have three characteristics. One is that there is a perceived threat or danger. The threat isn't often, isn't always a real threat during a crisis. Sometimes it can be a perceived threat, like in the case of generalized anxiety disorders, where you may have a generalized feeling of anxiety that has become overwhelming. It is a result of an imbalance or disturbance in psychological functioning, and there is no ready or feasible solution. Now, the book does a really good job of going in and talking about some different theoretical foundations of crises. I'm going to kind of go through the Tyhurst model because I think it's pretty effective. It talks about the impact being the acute phase of the crisis, characterized by shock, panic, immobilization, and an immediate focus on immediate threats and needs. This is the point at which, you know, the tornado has just occurred, you're making sure everyone's okay, or it's on your way to the house, and you know that you've got to take cover. That's the impact stage. The recoil phase follows that, and it is when you're looking around and you're assessing what has happened, and you're starting to mobilize your internal and external supports to try to get everything in order to make it through this crisis. And then there's the post-trauma phase. And believe it or not, many people who went through the more tornado may still be in this phase. This is the resolution phase of the crisis in which the full extent of the damage is experienced or realized. And you might have nightmares, guilt, grief, and post-traumatic stress symptoms. As you can see, this part of the phase can go well beyond the initial phase of the crisis. Now, Kaplan also did a model, and he was really focused on the internal tension experienced by the crisis victim rather than this, you know, describing the stages so much. And then we go on, and we also see some models for how recovery can occur when they come into the healthcare environment. The Roberts Assessment Crisis Intervention and Ta Trauma Treatment Model, or the ACT model, says that we're going to assess the patient, we're going to establish that therapeutic relationship by building the rapport and getting, you know, getting to be in a position where they trust us enough to talk to us, identifying the triggers, the stressors, the resources, the protective factors, really breaking this down onto an individual level and finding out what they have and what they're going to need to make it through that crisis. Addressing the feelings that are going along with it using active listening and you know, really taking the time to understand what our patient is going through and then helping them to explore alternatives like what's worked for you in the past and what's our inventory. Here again, the problems and the triggers and all of that can kind of go along with this phase. And we're trying to see what's there for them so that they can go ahead and move forward. And then implementing an action plan in the least restrictive manner and establishing a follow-up plan. And this is pretty much what we do in the nursing process in the psychiatric unit all the time. So it could apply to a big crisis or it can apply to a personal crisis. 
But when my patient comes in to talk to me on the nursing unit, you know, I do take that time to build a rapport and, and see what's going on, find out their chief complaint, why they're there, how they're feeling. And then eventually through that nursing process, we're looking at what is there for them, what resources and supports they have to try to put together a model for what they can do post-discharge, a safety plan for them post-discharge, and making sure that our care doesn't stop once they leave our facility, but there is adequate follow-up to continue that care on into the next phase. So I like this model. It's a really good one. Um, let's go ahead and talk about categories of crisis. First of all, there is a maturational crisis. And a maturational crisis can arise when an individual has difficulty achieving developmental tasks. I like the example in the book where it talks about someone who in their young adult years is maybe diagnosed with a debilitating illness. And maybe because they've developed MS or you know rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, they are unable to go on and to meet the next developmental phases that are necessary for them. When, and so what happens is that's a maturational crisis. You know, they're not going to go on maybe and establish a family because they're focused on meeting the needs of this illness. And there's also situational crises that develops to in response to sudden or unexpected traumatic life events that are beyond the coping capabilities of the individual that are experiencing them. So go back to our young adult, you know, who's now been diagnosed with MS or rheumatoid arthritis or something that impacts their life. That is an example of how a physical illness situational crisis can affect them, and it can move on into a maturational crisis. An acute exacerbation of mental illness might be a might be triggered by a situational crisis. You might have depression that results from it or something else. And when we have crises like this, it can have an impact on significant others. For example, um, let's say their father has seen their daughter diagnosed with MS or some life-changing or life-limiting illness and they've developed a situational crisis. And because of that, you know, their perceptions of what the event might mean for their child or for them as a parent. Because think about it, you know, if your child has suddenly become ill, you might now see your role very differently and have to care for them. What about parents whose children are born to them and they're diagnosed with maybe a severe mental disability? They may look at their child then and see a whole future where this child is not going to be able to develop normally and is going to be dependent upon others. It's a significant impact that it can make on their own life trajectory. All right, now we'll talk about an adventitious crisis. An adventitious crisis arrives from traumatic events that are well beyond the expected scope of normal human experience. These are the big things, the ones that everyone's afraid of and the ones that people worry about. Violent crime, natural disasters, war, terrorism. We can look back at our own national history within the past few years and see several things that would be classified as adventitious crisis. For example, the bombing of the Murrow Building, the Moore Tornado, 9-11. These are big-scale traumatic events, and they are things that happen, but they can also happen on a more personal level as well. Like, for example, what about the young college girl who is sexually assaulted or something like that? So I just want you to know that these are things that don't normally happen during a 
you know, it's not an expected event. It's beyond the external scope of human experience. And as such, there aren't going to be a lot of coping skills many times that people are able to use to help to recover from these. And they may need some outside help. So Diaz described three critical aspects of an effective response to natural disasters. This is in response to this. Dealing with the root shock or the loss of the normal environment for survivors. Mobilization of individuals in the community, and community redevelopment. And we really did see this during our more tornado. You know, we're looking at it on an individual basis. We're taking these families right away. The Red Cross comes in. You know, they get these um, resources mobilized. We have shelters set up immediately, food, clothing, everything they need to make it through the night and to take assessment of what is left and what they're going to need. And then the community really rallied around these people and they brought in clothes and people gave food and gift cards and helped serve meals to victims who had lost their home. And we kept those resources open for as long as they needed it. And then at the end, there was a community redevelopment. You drive through more Oklahoma right now, you can barely see the results of what happened just a few years ago. So that is an example. You drive through downtown Oklahoma City. You know, here again, when we saw the Oklahoma City Murrow Building bombing, we saw, you know, an assessment of who had lost loved ones and ministering to those families and seeing the, you know, people come in and, the you know, I had friends that were part of Cisco at the time. They went in, they set up food to feed all the, the care providers that were trying to help with rescue efforts. Um, the community mobilized mental health resources. And now, years later, you see a community that has a beautiful memorial set up for this tragic, tragic event. So I like to, to see how this process works. Of course, here again, when it's a really large-scale event, like, so for example, um, you know, the, the decimation that's been caused by some of the hurricanes recently, it can be more difficult in these cases to mobilize enough resources to meet the needs of the people there. Now, nurses perform crisis assessments in diverse settings, including emergency departments, disaster site schools, medical and psychiatric hospital units, and outpatient clinics. I can tell you that we practice regularly on a daily basis in part of my charge nurse duties when I was working at St. Anthony's where we would have drills that were citywide. It was part of my responsibility to go through and look at my patient list and decide who I thought could be stable enough for discharge and be able to function in the community and who would be necessary to continue to maintain to see the number of beds that I would have available should the crisis become more large scale and us have to do some triage and some in-housing of those patients who needed to come in. When nurses do these types of settings, they're going to look at safety first and make sure that their environment is safe. Here again, if we're adding to the crisis by not assessing our immediate environment, we're doing an injustice to those who are in our immediate environment. So the first thing we're going to do is look at our, our immediate environment. We're going to classify the type of, type of trauma, classify the stage of adaptation displayed by the individual. Here again, this is more on an individual basis now. Articulate the individual's perception of the crisis, identify coping skills and resources, assess the risks, identifying treatment and referral needs, and determine the likelihood of available treatments for supports. So anyway, I just wanted to go through this real quick, and I also wanted to mention there are type 1 and type 2 traumas. Type 1 traumas are ones that are one-time, limited experience 
that generally are less likely to cause PTSD. Type 2 traumas are experiences that are recurrent and chronic. For instance, if you were in an area where there was a war going on in your country, you would probably have some type 2 trauma from just this continual fear that you're living in. Or if you have recurrent victimization by a, an abusive parent or, you know, chronic neglect, these are all types of type 2 trauma. The book next goes on to talk about the adaption stage, and it's talking about general adaption syndrome by, I don't know how to say this guy's name, Saley, 1956. It basically describes the stages through which most individuals progress during attempts to cope with significant stressors. I want you to know that we are going to cover this much more in depth during lectures on the stress response. And But it does have three phases, which are the alarm, resistance, and exhaustion phase. And this is basically, you know, the triggering of the fight-or-flight response. And if these symptoms are exacerbated or they continue, um, such as types of complex trauma where you have repeated traumas that occur over and over in type 2 trauma, then eventually people can reach this exhaustion phase. And it is at this point that... There is a complete failure of um, coping resources to resolve the stressor and a significant worsening in mental and physical health. So it's important that, you know, when we have somebody that's in trauma, that we help them to not get all the way to this phase if we can so that we don't have those significant changes. The next thing the book mentions is lived experience, and it talks about how when we are actually, you know, trying to help people recover from trauma, that there is a lot of times a use of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is depends on an accurate assessment of the lived experience of the crisis. And so getting that lived experience, you might be familiar with this when you're talking about um, qualitative research. We want to know what the patient is feeling and their perceptions and their emotions that they're going through as these traumas have occurred. And that way we can help them to resolve some of these things. And then in every crisis assessment, we should be taking a look at the patient's resources, whether they're physical resources, behavioral, emotional, social, whatever that person has to be able to cope, physical resources being like finances, their residence, their transportation, you know, health insurance coverage, employment, and then behavioral and emotional resources like their ability to have, be, have resilience, to stress, um, hardiness would be an example of a behavioral resource, um, their ability to use relaxation techniques, their coping skills, um, social resources might include people around them. Can you go stay with your parents? You know, what programs are there? You know, we have a great National Alliance on Mental Illness here. You can go use that. So you can see that there are lots of different types of resources a person can use. And then we have these things that are called risk and adherence potential. And let me just go ahead and talk to you about adherence potential a little bit. When you have somebody who perhaps maybe lives out in rural Oklahoma and they don't have a lot of access to resources, what is their adherence potential going to be? If they have a limited income and medications are expensive, do they have the potential to actually adhere? So the more things that we can do to overcome barriers to adherence, the better adherence potential a person will have. And the other thing that I will mention is that when we're talking about someone's risk, when someone is in crisis and they have a significant disruption in functioning, 
there is increased risk of physical, psychological, and practical, you know, illnesses that are probably possibly going to occur during a crisis period. You can imagine how the immune system is weakened by stress and also how pre-existing conditions such as depression or anxiety are going to be incredibly exacerbated by stress. So this is something that would be important for us to assess when we're looking at these patients who are experiencing crisis. Now, I'm going to talk about on page 584 of your book, it gives you a good um, crisis intervention approach. I feel like I'm being a little bit repetitive with some of the other ones, but it does, again, mention that we have to maintain safety first, manage mood symptoms associated with the crisis, develop good coping skills to overcome the, the crisis that's occurred, and promote connection with social and resource supports, and take a directive and instructional approach similar to interventions appropriate for patients with severe anxiety. In this point, when we're in crisis, we may have somebody who has a really difficult time making decisions, and they may need us to take more of a prescriptive approach than we would normally take when we're dealing with patients. Um, I will also talk to you about psychological debriefing, which has to do with stress debriefing, and it is an intervention that's a one-time thing, and it's aimed to provide information regarding the crisis, elicit feelings and perceptions related to it, provide education regarding normal responses to trauma, and provide resources for treatment and support. So obviously this can be applied, you know, on a larger scale to victims of severe trauma, especially in mass trauma situations, but probably isn't quite as effective as maybe a more individualized approach, but maybe necessary for, you know, larger scale traumas. And then the book talks about psychological first aid, which is a brief and practical intervention used in the immediate aftermath of distress on large-scale traumas. And it basically incorporates three aspects, provision of practical supports, ranging from, of course, food and shelter and things like that and information, um, such as, you know, how to help somebody even plan for a funeral. And then also it um, looks at uh, education regarding normal reactions to trauma and crisis and coping skills training. Here again, though, you know, I understand that sometimes we have to use these approaches, but it is much less effective than an individualized approach to, you know, processing through the difficulty of trauma through, like, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is for somebody who, you know, as an individual basis is going in and talking through what's going on. It may include a variety of different techniques that can help somebody to cope with what is going on. Um, And then, of course, there are some things we can do for anxiety management on a pharmacological level. We, of course, can use, and and these are not recommended for long term, so I will just say that right now, but we can use benzodiazepines that can help. Benzodiazepines like Ativan or you may be familiar with Xanax or things like that, they do have um, an addictive nature to them. So we try to avoid using them when we can. The other thing is, is if you use them consistently for a while, then when you actually discontinue the benzodiazepine or, you know, like Ativan or Xanax, you can actually have seizures that develop as a result of it. So I don't like to see patients use those, but in a crisis situation, they are highly effective. They can help a patient be able to control their anxiety a little bit better. Um, Longer term, you might see things like Buspar, uh, which may be used to help with anxiety. I will say that with Buspar, however, that it is not something that is effective necessarily right away. It does tend to take some time for it to build up a blood level before it's very effective. 
So and then of course you could also use some other things like SSRIs, Paxil. I will even say that sometimes beta blockers such as metoprolol and things like that can be given immediately after a traumatic experience to help you know, to um, block the formation of emotionally charged memories that might precipitate actual stress disorder or PTSD. Interestingly, beta blockers also tend to have an effect when people take them long-term, like metoprolol for blood pressure. They do often experience a decrease in uh, normal anxiety as well, which can be a good thing. I had a doctor one time tell me, I told him I was going to publicly speak, and we were talking about it, and I said, yeah, I get nervous, and he goes, I'll just take a beta blocker. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny because I did already take one. So I, I scheduled it to be about an hour before I had to publicly speak. And it did really help. So anyway, just a little side note for fun. One thing to remember in all of this is that, you know, as nurses, we are often the first point of contact for individuals in crisis. So we have to be good at being able to interact with our patients and be a calming presence. And remember that starts with ourselves. If we can take the time for self-care when we're not on the floor and not doing what we're doing and take the time to learn how to do some deep breathing when we experience stress on the job and do some self-calming techniques even in the middle of a work day, then we can be much more effective for these patients that are experiencing this very difficult life situation that we are trying to help them with. So I believe that good self-care and good, you know, intervention for our own anxieties can be very helpful. Now the book goes on to talk about population specific things that can happen in crisis and I wanted to mention like for example children may need to process through it in play and you may see a regression in their behaviors. You know we frequently see this with hospitalized children as well that they tend to exhibit categories of behavior that would be Perhaps for someone much younger, like you may see an older child return to thumb sucking or bedwetting or things like that. And let me just say that the skills that we're learning through art journaling can be especially valuable to you if you're working with children who are trying to express things because they often don't have the words that you and I have to express their difficult emotions. So in the case of children, you know, many times when we do therapy with them on the unit, you know, you might use puppets because they don't feel safe talking with their own voice, or you might use artwork to represent what they're feeling. Now, I will say adolescents also can return to previous developmental stages, and especially adolescents can differ from other population in that they experience a number of critical developmental milestones, and therefore they are especially susceptible to maturational crises. They may not go on to meet the goals of their development if they're focused on, say, for instance, you know, some horrible tragedy that's occurred or maybe um, the breakup of a girlfriend or something like that. I never will forget my daughter at one point when she was in her sophomore year of high school had a bad car accident. And during that time, she quit turning in her chemistry homework. And it's it would not seem that those things would be connected, but they were very connected. And so for about a month, she didn't turn it in and she almost failed chemistry. She was able to turn it all in and finish it all in one night and got a B in AP Chem. So it worked out. But this is an example of how, you know, this crisis event for her that was very traumatic, you know, almost caused her to have some problems with her academic, you know, excellence that she was trying to achieve. Now, adults may be able to use their words a little bit better. They don't necessarily use the imaginative styles of coping that children have. 
Instead, they may rely heavily on their belief systems and, you know, spiritual coping, coping styles or on cognitive styles and may seek to resolve a crisis individually. You may see them use withdrawal and denial-based coping skills in an attempt to minimize the crisis experience or simply avoid its effects. And they can, this can limit their social coping potential. So you could see how if they're doing these types of things, they may have some maturational crises as well. Older adults who are victims of crises may also suffer diminished social coping due to lack of access to social support and a tendency towards self-reliance and resilience that they've learned in their past through experiences of coping. They are more likely to experience these situational crises because think about it. You have elderly people and they may have the loss of a loved one or they may have an illness that occurs that changes their quality of life. Or, you know, they may fall and break a hip. I mean, you just never know. Even dementia can be a problem which significantly impairs their perception and coping capacities. So situational crises for these people in particular can be very difficult to deal with. And it's important to be aware that this is something we need to assess for. I was interested to read in your book, and I'm going to refer you to read the part on page 587 about intercultural situations in particular. And it's said in the book that there is substantial debate across cultures concerning the cultural applicability of Western psychiatric diagnoses such as PTSD, definitions of normal and abnormal expressions of emotional pain. And, you know, you can imagine that some cultures may express pain very differently from one another. And so it may be difficult sometimes if you are working with an international population to apply your own cultural norms to them when you're looking at their coping with crisis. Men also may be a vulnerable population in the setting of crisis because they're likely to resist help because help-seeking behaviors may challenge the social norm and masculinity and induce a sense of vulnerability. They may attempt to regain control through the use of aggressive behavior. It's important here again that when we are dealing with men that are in crisis situations that we be non-judgmental and you know try to avoid the negative bias that may be associated with aggression. And so I particularly find it that when we have men that come to the psychiatric unit that establishing a good rapport becomes especially important especially if you have someone who is maybe acting aggressively because many times, you know, some kindness and some concern and some empathy and establishing that rapport can go a long way to diffuse the aggression and be able to start to talk to them about crises. So I hope this has helped you to understand about crises and intervention and crises types of situations. I felt this was early, um, important to include this early in our lectures because of the fact that Many, 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 many times in the psychiatric unit, in fact, most of the time, our patients are coming in in a crisis state. So being able to do that type of assessment and to calm situations and to calm yourself and take them through this process of identification of resources and connecting them back to their resources in the community is a very important part of the psychiatric nursing process. It is not restricted to major events. It can occur on a daily basis as we do crisis intervention for people who are experiencing situational or life crises or maturational crises that have brought them into our care. Thank you for taking the time to listen.